the rules of the game affect the way the game is played and affect the outcomes of that game. So for example, in our organizations, we know that we will get the behavior that we incent. We will get the behavior that we reward. And politics and the politics industry is no different. So when we look at what the rules are set up to incent, we come face to face with the key problem. Politics isn't broken. It's actually doing what it's designed to do. That's Catherine Gale, who, along with Michael Porter, has written the new book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HPR Presents Network. We live in a world of overwhelming options, and whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or just someone who wants to make the most out of your time and money, committing to just one thing can feel impossible. That's called FOMO, and it's short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers how they make personal and professional decisions in a world of overwhelming choice. FOMO. 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 Lately, it can feel like things are spinning out of control. 2020 has been like a runaway freight train, and it doesn't feel like things are going to slow down anytime soon. That's why in the run-up to the 4th of July, America's 244th birthday, I wanted to spend the next two weeks diving deep into understanding what is causing this dysfunction and how we can fix it. Because if our political system doesn't work, and it doesn't right now, it does not reflect the will of the people. And voters don't have real choices, they just have the illusion of choice. A few years ago, I read something that completely changed the way I saw the world. It was a Harvard Business School case study called Why Competition in the Politics Industry is Failing America. Here's why that case made such an impression on me. By applying Porter's five forces, that classic framework that identifies and analyzes five competitive forces that shape every industry, the authors Catherine Gale and Michael Porter convincingly argued that the problem with American politics is that it operates as a classic duopoly with two competitors, the Democrats and the Republicans, which each represent their own interests rather than the interests of the American people. I was so impacted by what I learned when I read that case that I read it three times, and then I saw Gail and Porter present their findings four times, and I actually sent this case to dozens of friends, even to strangers. In fact, I want all of you to read it too. You can download the case for free at gailporter.com. That's G-E-H-L-P-O-R-T-E-R.com. Now, Gail and Porter are back, and they've expanded their work into a stunning new book called The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. And they're here today to tell us what's wrong in American politics and how we can fix it. In fact, I believe this work is so important and so pathbreaking that we're going to spend the next two weeks talking with Catherine and Michael. This week, we'll focus on diagnosing the problem, and next week, we will focus on solutions. Then stick around for a very important full moment of the show when we will talk with Lisa Lewin and Craig Robertson of the Leadership Now Project about how corporate America can step up and play a role in advocating for racial equity in business and society. We will also talk about a pledge that they have created that all of us can sign on to to demand more from our business leaders when it comes to racism. And now onto the interview. To get started, I wanted to set the stage for our discussion by taking stock of this moment in time. So I asked Catherine to assess the political environment in the United States at this very moment. Our political system is incapable of solving the problems that need solving in this country. And almost every time that we have a crisis, when we look into it, we find 
that if our political system ran better, we either wouldn't have had that crisis or we would have handled it much faster at less cost and with greater results for you know the people affected. So Michael and I, in some ways, have the um, well the benefit of being able to stay focused on our work with the knowledge that it can contribute to ameliorating almost any negative and tragic situation that we find ourselves in going forward. So summary, state of play is things are tough out there. And yet state of play on the systemic political system is that the problems predated 2020 by decades and will continue after unless we do something. Now, Michael, I know you've seen this as well. You've spent time in Washington. Obviously, you've advised members of government, Congress, senators on economic policy over the years, and you've seen how dysfunctional things are. What did you see in your trips to Capitol Hill, and what was your perception, I guess your diagnostic on what was happening? Uh, we, we had a plan for how to fix Washington's policy on competitiveness, because that's what we were working on. And, and they said, oh, yeah, we like your plan. You know, those are the things we need to do. But then one by one, in some way, uh, they would whisper to me on the way out of their office, but, you know, it's, we're going to have a lot of trouble doing that. And I, I, that was literally a, a bolt of lightning to me. I had, I had no idea. I thought these were smart people. They were trying to solve problems. And we just we have a political system that's not designed to deliver uh, the kind of results this country needs. Uh, and, and I think citizens know that things aren't going that great for the country. Citizens know the political system is is not uh, something they're you know, comfortable with in many cases, but frankly, what it, it just nobody, including me, and, and Catherine knew much more than I did. I didn't know why. It just seemed irrational. I mean, these are, and these are a lot of these were intelligent people. Some of them were HBS grads, and yet they couldn't seem to do things that seemed obvious. So one of the things that that really struck me, I've seen the work about U.S. competitiveness, and one of the things that's interesting is, seems like, you know, America's doing really well in certain areas. It's entrepreneurship, and our companies are doing well. But the area where we're failing is in our government, because if you don't have a government that works, you can't create an environment for businesses to thrive. And so this is where the intersection of business and politics come together. Now, Catherine, you are off living your life running a business in uh, in Wisconsin, a family business. You turned around, you sold it. And, you know, you, you, very successful in that outcome. What brought you into politics? How did you decide to engage in trying to solve American politics, which, by the way, is no small feat? Before I started working on all the systemic things, I engaged in politics in a traditional way, which is I was really concerned about the trajectory of the country. And I thought that the answer was, well, then you got to back great candidates. And you have to, you know, put some time into that. And so I was uh, living in Chicago and I got very involved in Senator Obama's 2008 presidential campaign because I had known him for a long time and I was in Chicago and I was super involved. And in the right before the Iowa caucuses in January of 2008, I got in my car. I left my uh, daughter who was one and a half. I'd never left her for any days really before. And I drove to Des Moines to participate in going door to door in advance of the caucuses. 
we were in a, in an area uh, that was really going through some hard times. And when we got to one house, there was a laser printed, you know, sign on the door that said no solicitations and no messages of hope. And, you know, I have never forgotten that because at the time I was still really naive and I was all in for hope and change. And I thought, what is it that this person has seen that has him or her not want to think about hope or wants to reject this message? But fast forward 10 years later, we have another decade of failing to solve anything. So I continue to be, and in our book, we are very optimistic about the trajectory of the country if we change our political system, but not if we don't. And so I've come around to saying I have hope if we can get the system to work for the citizens. And and that's why I do this work. Now, Michael, for many of us who are listening are familiar with Porter's Five Forces, but I'm going to take advantage of having you here on the podcast to ask you if you could, for the uninitiated, give us a crash course in Porter's Five Forces. The Five Forces, the idea is that, that competition is, is a, a set of competitors competing to deliver uh, value to some set of customers. And in order to do that, there's a lot of other actors involved. Uh, and those other actors can, uh, can have, have, have more or less power. And those actors, other actors can take more and more of the potential profitability. So competition is always a system. It's never just one thing. It's never just two competitors. It's always a whole system. We have to look at it as a system. And the five forces provide the kind of uh, navigation of how do we think about the key elements of that system. And then once you do that in politics and even start that question, what are the barriers to entry in politics? And so here's a part of the story I love, because you have this system, Fortis Five Forces, that's been used to analyze every industry under the sun, except for politics. And through serendipity, you two come together and take this approach for the first time, and it, it leads to some pretty stunning insights. So Catherine, uh, I want to hear the story behind how this collaboration took place, because you two live in different parts of the country, you're running a business. Michael's advising companies, he's a professor at HBS, and then somehow you come together and basically go all in for political reform. So how did it all start and why did you figure out that the five forces was critical to figuring out what was going on in American politics? This was really, I mean, the story of how we got here today, I'd say, is uh, the most serendipitous series of events that have really ever taken place in my life. Um, going back to 2013, so again, I was already deeply engaged in politics, but at that time I was obviously full-time running this you know, $250 million food manufacturing company, and we kicked off a classic corporate strategy project. It was a great project. I mean, I loved my company and my job, and, and the result of the project was really great and helped us a lot. But something else happened during that project, which is that as we were working through using the classic tools that most business people use when they design their strategy, one of those being Michael Porter's five forces, 
that's really the gold standard for understanding competition in the industry. As we were working through that for my food manufacturing company, it was the prototypical light bulb moment. Uh, as in, wow, all these things that we're talking about, you know, customers, suppliers, the rivals, barriers to entry substitutes. Oh my goodness, all of those are in politics. And Politics is working just like any industry. In fact, sometimes I say, oh, it wasn't a light bulb moment during that strategy process in the back of my head. I had light bulb moment after moment after moment after moment. Every time we went to another part of the five forces, I completed another piece of the analysis of politics as an industry. So there I was looking at my food manufacturing company and thinking about, well, who's competing against us? And I end up seeing, and in the politics industry, the Democrats and the Republicans don't have competitors outside of uh, outside of the one other competitor because the industry is protected. No other competition can get in. And this was really, it's very evident once we talk about it, but until I was doing the five forces analysis, it is not necessarily the way I would have described it. And when we talked about customers, it became clear that in the politics industry, oh, there are lots of customers, but who should be the most important customer is the citizen and the public interest. And yet, I knew they weren't, meaning the politics industry doesn't solve problems for the citizens. So who were they? And even then, it was clear it was donors and special interests and party primary voters. So this was all fascinating to me. I actually didn't intend to write an article or a book or do anything with that work. It was more like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And after I sold my company and I was working in political reform, I couldn't get other business people to get as excited about it as I was. I couldn't get them to invest their time and their resources and their influence into political reform. And I think I, how I diagnosed that at the time is that they thought that politics was super irrational and that they just didn't know how to make a difference there. And they thought it was a morass, an endless you know, investment of energy for no return. So I realized that we needed to write the business case for investment in what I started to call then political innovation. We needed to say what the ROI was. And so that's when I said, let's use, you know, this five forces analysis, because that's the language that the business people, you know, are already familiar with. And let's talk about this through the lens of competition. So unhealthy competition in politics, how can we turn it into healthy competition? And as, you know, serendipitous as this was, Michael Porter had been the consultant on our project at Gale Foods. And, you know, so I had the master showing me through the five forces in the first place. And then um, I asked him to co-author this article uh, because I thought that would be the most powerful, you know, partnership and which it has indeed uh, turned out to be. I will say I oversold it a little bit at first. I said, oh, you don't really, you know, have to do that much, we'll get it done quickly, and then you know you can go back to your other things. And now here we are. Right. We're years later, and this has become your life's work. And it's not just an intellectual exercise. You're trying to drive fundamental change. You're giving policymakers, you're giving all of us a playbook, a very practical playbook to reform the system. Quick math. 
The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. Now, this was uh, this insight that you had with the five forces and how you applied it was turned into a case study at Harvard Business School. And you gave this case study away. You go to gailporter.com. You can actually download it for free. Now it's a book. And I've read the case study multiple times. I've read the book now. And my takeaway is this. This is about an industry politics that does not serve the end customer. It's a duopoly that's all about self-preservation. And that leads to gridlock, outsized influence of money in politics, unhappy voters, and a lack of faith and public trust in the system. There is a complete disconnect between what the voters want and what the system generates. Now, Catherine, I want to continue to define the problem a little bit more before turning to solutions, because this is about rules and a lack of competition. So take us through how this plays out in our system as it stands today. Okay, so in our political system, what we need is results and innovation, and then we need accountability for getting results and innovation. And we have none of those. Here's why. Just like in any industry and really in any human endeavor, the rules of the game affect the way the game is played and affect the outcomes of that game. So for example, in our organizations, we know that we will get the behavior that we incent. We will get the behavior that we reward. And politics and the politics industry is no different. So when we look at what the rules are set up to incent, we come face to face with the key problem. Politics isn't broken. It's actually doing what it's designed to do. Right now in politics, there isn't a connection between a politician acting in the public interest and the likelihood that that politician will get elected or reelected, which is to say, if our politicians do their jobs the way we want and need them to, they're likely to lose those jobs. And that is a crazy design. I mean, You'd never do that. Design your system. You, you know, say to your employees, um, I'm going to reward you for doing the things I don't want you to do. And I'm going to punish you for doing the things I do want you to do. But that's what how we vote does in our political system now. And the core question then is, well, what is it in our system that makes that, that creates that disconnect? And what could we do in political reform or political innovation to create that connection so that our politicians are incented to do what we need them to do. And then the second piece will be, and then what could we create that would hold them accountable? Essentially in the industries that most of us work in, competition is what holds us accountable, which is to say that if we don't serve the customers, 
then a new competitor, a substitute, or a new entrant will come in and serve the customer. But that doesn't happen in politics, as we've already discussed, because of the high barriers to entry. So what do we have to do to lower the barriers to entry so that we can have new competition that will hold the politicians accountable? And once we can create a system where you're more likely to get elected if you do what needs doing for the public, and you're likely to have challengers if you don't do what needs doing, then we'll have a system that can actually deliver results. Um, And I like to call that uh, free market politics in sort of what is the best of the free markets? What should the free markets deliver? And I'll say that's results, innovation, and accountability. There was an example that really struck me. And I remember this year, Howard Schultz was thinking about running for president. And everybody said, don't run. You're going to be a spoiler. You're going to hand the election to the other party. And I remember just thinking, how is it possible that we see competition is so vital in the private sector, but in the public sector, because of the way the rules are written, we don't want competition. We want less competition. How can that be good for voters, the consumers, right? And so that's what's happening. The rules, the way are they are written, they hand power to these two parties, this oligopoly, and this drives outcomes that are very negative for the voters. So, Michael, explain how this oligopoly works and what are the outcomes of having a system that's designed, and it is designed, like that. This is a highly partisan system. There's, there's just two players, and one's on the left and one's on the right. And they are very different, and they've chosen their customers accordingly. So the parties are smart. They don't go head-to-head trying to serve the same customers. They, they've recognized that they need to divide up the customers into those that are most aligned with their particular ideology and their particular point of view and uh, uh, kind of the right and the, and the left. And um, And so once you understand, they're not competing for the same customers, and the customers they're competing for are not the average citizen, are not the public. They are a a defined, very carefully defined subgroup of citizens that believe in conservatism or or, or liberal, uh, and and they have very, very strong desires. Some are gun control and some, you know, hate gun control. And, 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 And the parties are very smart in understanding that uh, if they can really focus on serving those partisan customers, that is what brings in the money. That's what brings in the repeat. They show up at the party primary every single time. Uh, they and, and they're highly loyal and highly connected. Uh, so it's a, it's all a, a very skewed set of incentives that come out of basically how they've thought about who they're actually serving, who their customer is. If the parties would, would wake up one day and say, our job is to serve the average American, everything would change. That's not what they do. And, uh, and they also find that not getting things done, they'd rather not compromise because the more they stick to their ideology, the more they'll get support from their partisans. Again, you got to understand this industry structure and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's subtlety. It's not obvious. You'd think that the customer of the politics industry is the citizens of America. And if you think it at that level, you will miss, understand what's really going on. All right. So we have defined the problem. It's a systems problem. It's about a lack of competition. It's about rules that do not generate good outcomes for voters and reform is needed. And so it's a big problem. It seems kind of overwhelming to me, to be honest. It feels 
like such a heavy lift. Catherine, before we go on to solutions next week, I just want you to have the final word on whether this is even solvable or not. So what do you, what do you tell people when, when, when you start talking about the problems, how do you convince them that we can actually do something? When I started, you know, doing this work, I would, well, even now I would tell people and basically the most common response is you're doing what? And then I say it and then there's a little bit of a laugh and essentially a, well, good luck with that. You know, more power to you, but very little belief that it can get done. And I think that when people read the book and get engaged, they will actually see that uh, there's no need to laugh at this. Super powerful. We can make it happen. And we'll continue this conversation on the next episode of FOMO Sapiens. So get ready. We're going to get deep into solutions. And until then, thanks so much for being here, Catherine Gale and Michael Porter. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO Sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show. And this week, I want to talk about another systemic problem that's affecting American democracy, systemic racism. It's easy to feel hopeless in the face of such an entrenched problem, but this is a moment to take action, whether you're protesting in the streets or calling for fundamental reforms in the boardroom. To discuss how business can step up and take a leading role in advocating for racial equity, I'm joined by Lisa Lewin and Craig Robinson of the Leadership Now Project, which unites business leaders to take action to fix American democracy. Now, long-term listeners might recall that we had the CEO of Leadership Now, Daniela Ballou Ayers, on the show way back in season two. And you also might recall that I'm a member and I'm actually part of the steering committee. So I believe in this work and I wanted to share it with you. This is such a huge problem, so I thought in order to get started, it would be helpful to have Lisa tell us some basic facts about policing and the Black community in America. So I'll just start with some just some data, just some raw statistics. So last year, 2019, law enforcement in the U.S. killed over 1,000 people. Native Americans and Black people have the highest rates of fatal encounters with the police. So a disproportionate number of that thousand people were in those two ethnic groups, which to me is a present day reminder of the unique and troubled histories that this country has with those two populations. And unarmed Black people in particular, and especially women, um, in fact, are more likely to be killed than unarmed people of any other racial or ethnic background. And that's to say nothing of the disproportionate harassment the profiling, the use of force that unfortunately we experience often in just going about our daily lives. Um, Hence the hashtags that you'll often see, driving while black, walking while black, working while black, golfing while black. 
bird watching while black and on and on. So, so it's this denial of our basic humanity that too often spills out into view and in ways that demand a response like it has with the deaths of George Floyd, the deaths of Breonna Taylor, and the many others before them. So there have been a lot of statements, thoughts and prayers, anti-racism statements coming out from the business community. And those are wonderful um, and certainly well-meaning. But at the end of the day, anti-racism statements that don't explicitly speak to that reality of those statistics are not serious when it comes to policy and pathways to actually achieving racial equity. So the situation is dire. We are in a crisis and lots of companies are posting on social media. Hashtag activism is not going to make a difference here. So how can business step up and take a constructive role in fighting systemic racism? Greg, take us through your thinking. Businesses have a significant amount of power and influence. And I would say they actually have an outsized influence and that's most obvious through the donations they make to campaigns and candidates, the lobbying, the pact. And that is why we got together and crafted a call to action to the business community from the business community. We're calling it a business for racial equity pledge. So in our equity pledge, racial equity pledge, we, we identified three areas, um, policing, civic participation, and economic inclusion. And those are big uh, areas, but there are specific things in each of them that businesses and the people who lead those businesses, the people who work for them, the the, the boards that govern them can do. Um, and we started with policing first and foremost, because it's important to note that that is why we are here. We are, we, we are having this national dialogue because people were murdered by police officers. That is that that is the reason why we are even here at the table. The second is uh, really about civic participation. And we ought to know and recognize that voter suppression is just another form of systemic racism. The last of, of our call to action is about economic inclusion. Racism impacts, you know, not only individuals like myself, um, and Lisa and everyone, you know, listening to this this podcast, but um, it, it, it affects the entire U.S. economy. So when we start talking about reopening the economy and rebuilding the economy, let's just make sure it's an inclusive one. Now, Lisa, as I discussed with Catherine and Michael, voters, because of the rules of the game, have less power than they should have in our system. But at the same time... Things like Citizens United, which basically made corporate giving unlimited when it comes to the political sphere, have increased the power of companies. So what does it mean uh, that this pledge is aimed at business? I guess, what is the dynamic that you see that convinces you that business can come in here and have a strong voice that could actually make change? It means that we are in a really backwards, upside down moment in our democracy's history, where corporations' civil rights are on the march, are on the ascendance, and the people's, particularly Black people's right to participate in their own government is on the decline. So as I always like to say, 
you know, the old adage is be careful what you wish for. Business and corporations now have all the influence in the world over legislation and over politics. And as a result, our belief is that they're going to increasingly be called to action by a thoroughly disenfranchised citizenry in the way that our statement calls them to action to speak up on issues of racial justice and racial equity. So we can find the pledge at leadershipnowproject.org. And Craig, who should be signing this pledge? Well, one, we want everyone to sign this pledge. We're obviously targeting um, executives um, who will sign this pledge, but we know that some of that pressure may come from the employees and their teams and their groups and their companies that sign this pledge and then go to their leadership teams and say, where are we on this? All right, so ask your companies, hold them accountable, and join me in signing the pledge at leadershipnowproject.org. Lisa Lewin and Craig Robinson of the Leadership Now Project, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. FOMO. And that's the end of another episode. If you have an idea, a story, or a question, you can find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, and at www.patrickmcginnis.com, where you can also take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it at Spotify and at iTunes. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com.